From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit PropperCloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. The White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer saying the president uh, had been concerned for a few weeks that General Michael Flynn had misled Vice President Pence. Here to tell us more, Ariel Cohen, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and uh, also director of the Center for Energy, Natural Resources and Geopolitics. Uh, Dr. Cohen, thank you very much uh, for being uh, with us and the Institute for Analysis of Global Security, also based in Washington, D.C. Maybe you could just give us your reaction to the ongoing, I guess, investigation uh, into the former head of the National Security Council. Well, uh, unfortunately, this is an unprecedented situation where, from the get-go, from the beginning, the National Security Advisor is investigated by the FBI counterintelligence. There are allegations flying. You remember General Flynn appeared at the unfortunate uh, dinner with Mr. Putin, and also Jill Stein from the Green Party was sitting at their table. Uh, This was for the Russian um, fake news channel Russia Today in 2015. Um, And uh, then the question is, uh, what does it involve? Is it just a bad judgment or something more significant? And, of course, I'm not private to uh, any information beyond what we have in open sources. But uh, at the same time, I must say, um, there were clandestine uh, hush-hush contacts between electoral campaigns and foreign powers, including identified KGB agents. For example, Henry Kissinger uh, was negotiating, or at least in contact with, um, the Soviet um, representative who was identified KGB uh, before uh, Richard Nixon um, took power in uh, 1968. But Kissinger, an ultimate pro, uh, was very careful uh, to advise his boss, President Nixon, to keep meticulous notes and to advise other, other people about his contacts. So he did it uh, with the blessing of the principal. Um, Kissinger also uh, had a lot of um, behind closed doors and under the table contacts with the Chinese. Uh, And before that, during uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Bobby Kennedy, president's uh, brother and attorney general, was uh, in contact with the Russian ambassador, um, Anatoly Dabrinin, 
to try to evade the nuclear holocaust uh, caused by uh, the Soviet uh, uh, placing uh, nuclear weapons in Cuba. So there were precedents, and we will see well, in the next uh, weeks uh, how General Flynn extracts himself out of this uh, well, the bigger issue here, there, there are a couple of bigger issues. First of all, uh, there's an issue of security. And uh, if indeed uh, Michael Flynn lied to Vice President Pence, that's part of the issue, no? And not only that, but the, but the idea that there is some kind of security breach, that not all members of the core uh, group in President Trump's administration uh, are on the same page about, this is a problem, No. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, uh, misleading or, or misinforming Vice President Pence was probably a very bad idea. And as always in Washington, it's not the transgression that gets you. It's lying a bit about the transgression. So that's a known thing for an ultimate insider as Mike Flynn. This was, um, to me, a surprise. Uh, secondly, uh, now you are having uh, Congress, the Senate, uh, eager to investigate a broader range of issues in terms of connections to Russia. And we will see how that will go. So from the beginning, instead of focusing on massive uh, challenges, I've just written today about uh, the North Korean and uh, Iranian nuclear, uh, I'm sorry, uh, ballistic missile tests uh, that probably were timed to derail the Japanese prime minister's visit to Lago El Mar and uh, to test the administration. Instead of focusing on that and Mr. Netanyahu coming to town tomorrow, uh, the president and the vice president and the White House have to deal with investigations and allegations and everything else that distracts them uh, from the business of running uh, the country and running the free world. Uh, Dr. Cohen, I wonder if you could just uh, step back a second. I want to ask you about Russia, because I've been looking at the performance of the Russian uh, ruble, and uh, it has continued to gain strength against the U.S. dollar. Uh, Correct. The uh, increase in any oil revenue because of cutbacks in OPEC production and so on. I wonder if you yeah. could just give us a, a perspective of what kind of situation does Vladimir Putin uh, face uh, as president? Because, you know, many times you always think the opposition or who, the person you don't know uh, has everything together and, and is quite organized. Sometimes everyone's you know in the same boat. They just don't know it. Uh, the Russians are in the same boat with the Iranians and the Saudis, that's for sure. That's why they're pushing so hard to cut uh, production. This is the first time we see Russia cutting significantly uh, its output, but uh, the main burden is, of course, on uh, the market maker, the Saudis, and uh, also Iran is not increasing its production as fast as they want. But this is a challenge for the Trump administration. If we really want to uh, force Iran to uh, comply uh, with the uh, Obama-era uh, nuclear agreement, we may want to keep the oil prices down. We may want to increase domestic production, including shale, and also uh, to allow uh, the United States to produce more by opening um, the offshore uh, acreage for ex- uh, exploration and exploitation uh, of oil and gas um, in the Pacific Shelf, Atlantic Shelf, and the Gulf of Mexico. President Obama, just before he finished his term, closed back a lot of acreage that was opened before. And also on land, we want to 
uh, increase um, uh, opportunities for ENP, for exploration and production. As far as Russia is concerned, of course, uh, Putin is playing his cards quite well, and his cards are bad. The economy, I just came back two weeks ago from Russia, uh, and then I was there before in, in December. The economy is not doing great. They ran out of growth. So their only hope uh, is uh, oil, gas, uh, some other raw materials, and then nuclear reactors and space launches, and the space launch industry just collapsed. Uh, it was an incredible thing to watch uh, what, when I was there, the investigations by the secret police of the space sector, uh, that just uh, people, um, because of corruption, because uh, they uh, were stealing uh, right. precious metals, um, uh, they just uh, destroyed a whole industry. Right. Thank you so much. Ariel Cohen, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council, breaking down what the potential implications are for the regarding the resignation of Michael Flynn. I'm Lisa Abramowitz here with Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. After high drama at the high court in the United States, uh, we're taking, we've been taking a little bit of a breather from the immigration executive order that President Trump signed, but it has not gone away. We want to get a sense of what the next steps are for this presidential administration. I want to bring in Alex Narasta, immigration policy analyst at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. Alex, I'm so glad that you could join us. Uh, I just want to start first with what is the next step for President Trump? Do we have a sense of that yet? Well, the next step that everyone's talking about is that he's just going to put out a newer draft of the executive order that removes all of the, a lot of the thorny issues that the court has raised, as well as all the draft errors and oversights that were in there in the first issue, um, reissue that order, um, and then it will be much more legally defensible and uh, wipe out a lot of the court's uh, disagreements. So we've heard a lot of talk about what harm could come from either the passage or the acceptance of this executive order or, uh, or not, or the rejection of it. Where do you weigh in on this? Well, the ban, um, I'm much more uh, sort of uh, interested in what the supposed benefits are. I mean, we can talk about the, the cost of the ban as well, uh, but it's supposed to try to decrease or eliminate uh, foreign-born terrorism on U.S. soil. But the seven countries that are part 
of this ban that were put on this temporary ban. Um, there have been zero Americans killed in terrorist attacks committed by folks from these seven countries on U.S. soil, and none, uh, no convictions or arrests at all of Libyans or Syrians for planning attacks on U.S. soil. So in order to understand like what downsides could happen from this, um, we need to realize that the upsides are very small to non-existent at all. Now, on the downsides, you have about 50,000 green cards a year going to folks from these countries. That's about 5% or so of the total each year, and a few hundred thousand visitors, not very many. So the economic impact of this uh, right off the bat won't be that great for Americans. But because there's really no upside in terms of how it could decrease terrorism, uh, it's, it's still a net cost. Uh, before we uh, sort of leave the immigration topic, I want to get your thoughts about immigration, but legal immigration as well as illegal immigration from Mexico. Uh, obviously not part of this specific travel ban, but uh, I'm wondering if I could get your deeper uh, view as to the forward-looking uh, sort of direction of immigration policy. Well, I think where immigration policy should be heading is toward a uh, liberalization uh, rather than a restriction. So the reason why people come illegally to the United States is that there is no legal pathway for them to come legally in the first place. So if you take a look at green cards in the U.S., which is the way that you get lawful permanent residency and can eventually apply for citizenship, there is no category in there for a low-skilled worker unless they're closely related to an American. Um, so just to say that again, because most people don't realize this, there is no green card category for a low-skilled worker. Um, and that is the main reason why these low-skilled workers from Mexico, Central America, and some other countries are able to come uh, come here illegally, is that there is no way for them to come legally. And I think that we should allow them to come legally and work here. Now, the other areas of immigration, like high-skilled workers, entrepreneurs, those also need to be expanded so that we can allow more people to come here and uh, grow our economy and start new businesses. Um, but on the low end side, the reason why we have illegal immigration is that we just can't come legally. Alex, what do you say to people who say that uh, these immigrants are taking U.S. jobs? Well, there's really no evidence of that. We don't live in a fixed pie economy. There's not a fixed number of jobs, uh, which means that if there are more people in this country who are spending money, who are starting businesses, who are working, that actually increases the number of jobs that are available. Meanwhile, if the number of people in this country were to decrease, it wouldn't free up jobs for Americans, for unemployed people. Um, most of those people, if they disappeared, they would take their jobs with them. Um, and that's because more people are a benefit uh, uh, to the economy, more people as workers, as consumers, as entrepreneurs, as investors, as people who make their lives and their homes here, it stimulates a lot more economic activity uh, than the jobs that they uh, merely take themselves. So that when you look across American states, you see the states that are doing the worst are the places where there are the fewest immigrants and nobody wants to move to. While a lot of the places that have a lot of job opportunities for natives and for immigrants are the ones where uh, everybody's moving to. Thank you very much uh, for joining us, uh, Alex uh, Norasta. He is uh, Immigration Policy Analyst, Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C.
seems we cannot go a day without U.S. stocks hitting a new high. And our next guest thinks that they will keep rising. I want to bring in Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Strategist for Federated Global Investment Management. And Phil, I want to start with inflation. We got a very good reading today uh, with wholesale uh, prices coming in. They rose at the fastest pace uh, since 2012, I believe. When is inflation going to become a problem for U.S. stock valuations? Well, that's an interesting question because the metric you just referenced was nominal inflation. What we like to look at is core year-over-year inflation, which strips out the volatility of food, energy, and, and more recently with the PPI trade services. That number was actually a poor number. Uh, it was up 1.6% year-over-year. It was down a tick from December. You look at the most recent wage data we got. When the uh, uh, January labor report came out, uh, year-over-year wage growth, which had been 2.9% in December, is now down to 2.5%. So basically you're saying that inflation doesn't seem to be getting ahead of itself at this point. It seems to be in a sort of sweet spot for stocks. It, well, yeah. I mean, inflation, you know, there are folks that are thinking, you know, inflation's going to go vertical eventually. And it might, but it's not right now. And and if the Fed is truly data dependent, as they've been telling us for the last, you know, so many years— uh, it's not in the numbers. Inflation's not a concern right now. Now, you raised another interesting point, which is that with inflation ticking up, bond yield should be ticking up, and, and, and stock multiples should be going the other way, you know, based upon the mathematics of the Fed model. And, and, and I agree with that conceptually. But if you go back and look at, you know, the last 20 cycles where bond uh, yields sort of moved up gradually, you can coexist with expanding multiples. The reality is that that price earnings ratios continue to expand as treasury yields get to 5%. It's not until treasury yields surpass 5% that we start to see that contraction. We were so we're, we're still line, okay. Just to sort of uh, what we were talking about offline is that 10-year treasury yields are now uh, near the lowest since 2010 relative to the earnings yield on the S&P 500. So it raises the question of at what point will people cycle back into bonds seeing that there is an alternative uh, to stocks and holding stocks just by virtue of uh, their dividend payments. Well, I, I don't know if I can connect those dots, but I just want to give you some stats, right? Take a look at the S&P 500. It is up more than four and a quarter percent so far this year. Yep. All right. Um, you've got a big uh, fund to move. I know uh, the Federated Global Allocation Fund, right? That's right. like almost a half a, what is it, half a trillion? No, no, no. Half, uh, a million. Half, a billion. <laughs> I beg your pardon. Sorry. We're, we're about 450 yeah, well, million. Not, yeah, four, we're, we're not that big okay, yet. Not From yet. your lips to God's ears. Yeah, right. $25 um, trillion fund? Yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, it's it's one of these global asset allocations. you got everything from Nestle to bonds yeah. to – okay. So uh, why is it that uh, on the one hand you, you could have a Greek course that tells us that we're all going, to, you know, in a handbasket? Um, on the other hand, as Lisa just started off the, the segment, we're hitting new highs uh, uh, with stocks. Right. So how do you reconcile all this hand-wringing and um, – the world is ending conversation with uh, stock uh, stock prices moving higher. Stocks well, going to make more. You're going to make more money if you get a corporate tax cut, right? Look, the, the 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 old chestnut is that stocks, you know, climb a wall of worry, and that's certainly to some degree what we're doing now. If you're asking the question, we've had a phenomenal run here since the election. Uh, you know, the S and P's up more than ten percent. The Russell's up more than twenty percent. Should we have a correction here near term? I can't disagree with that. 
And 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 the reality is that stocks do look a little overbought to me here near term, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if we had a modest correction, which I would define as something in the you know two to five percent neighborhood. But if I'm looking out over I'm the next at three years, let's say if three I'm looking years. out three years and I'm putting in place Trumponomics, you know, tax cuts, deregulation, more infrastructure spending, yada 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 yada, we're, we're looking at a twenty five hundred plus S and P. What's the worst bet over the next 12 months, in your opinion? It, it ought to be Treasury yields. Treasury yields ought to work higher. That, that if, if, if economic growth and inflation tick up as they should over the next two years, Treasury yields ought to go up as well. But from, let's say, a retiree's standpoint, if somebody's about to retire and they have a sort of safe allocation to bonds, is it going to be a bloodbath for them, or is it going to be a little bit of pain, but ultimately it should uh, be an orderly kind of uh, move into another rate cycle? Well, th- th- that's a different question, which is to say that not every t- retiree has all of their money in benchmark 10-year treasuries. You know, our fixed income guys would say that we would underweight treasuries, but there are other aspects of the fixed income market that are perfectly fine, spread products. And then our equity guys would say, well, you ought to have, you know, even though they're not doing so great, uh, at the moment, uh, you, you ought to have uh, some of the big dividend payers on the equity side, your your REITs and your utilities and, and consumer staples and whatever, because those are companies that are paying, you know, 3 4 5% dividend yields when you've got a treasury yield, you know, paying half that at 2.5%. So there are ways for a retiree to get their income without having, you know, all of their money in treasury yields, uh, benchmark 10-year treasury bonds where the yields are going up and the prices are going down. Phil Orlando, thanks very much for spending time with us. You got to spend more time. Always time. my pleasure. Just right. invite me. Invite me. I'll come. You're, you're, you know I what? like your tie. Oh, I should you. say he's got a red heart tie on. And, and Happy che- Valentine's check, Day. Check out. I got matching. the coordinating cufflinks. Nice. <laughs> he thinks ahead. He's got. He's, as they say, he's a strategic thinker. Man. I'm wearing red. I, and you. So are you. Thank you. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Strategist for Federated Global Investment Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.